This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 176th edition of the program. Today is Thursday, January 18th, and before we get into the show, I need to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, all of which either signed up to support us just this last week or increased their monthly pledge, and that includes Akanu Bogstali and Liquid Rain. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the program, you could visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on today's episode, we'll talk about the 2020 Democratic Party primary and how Bernie Sanders is gearing up to launch his campaign by recruiting the media team that made Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's viral video. And we'll also talk about Chuck Todd's desperate attempt to discredit Bernie Sanders and one comedian's anti-Bernie rant that is incredibly hypocritical. And I'll tell you why in that segment. We'll also talk about Bernie Sanders' call to curtail military spending and additional corporate Democrats are gauging interest with Wall Street for their 2020 presidential runs, and this includes Kirsten Gillibrand, Cory Booker, and Kamala Harris. We'll also address the criticism that Tulsi Gabbard has been receiving since she announced that she's running for president. And moving on to other news, some Democrats are afraid of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and I'm not saying that. This is what they're saying. They're literally afraid of her. So we'll talk about that. Claire McCaskill gets hired by MSNBC for some reason. Teachers across the state of California are striking. And Mike Huckabee kicks off his career as a comedian with a YouTube channel that is a cringe goldmine. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today's program. I hope you guys enjoy the show. Over the weekend, supporters of Bernie Sanders had more than 400 house parties across the nation, including in Puerto Rico, all with the goal of calling on him to run for president again. They made it clear they want him to finish what he started in 2016 and carry on the political revolution into 2020. Now, with each passing day, we are getting closer to the launch of Bernie Sanders' 2020 campaign, and even if he has yet to formally announce that he's running, it is evident that a Bernie 2020 campaign is inevitable because as we speak, he's currently gearing up to announce again. And we know that his announcement is coming soon because he's currently staffing up and it's evident from an article put out by Politico that he's doing a lot to get prepared. Bernie Sanders is adding firepower to his political team ahead of a 2020 campaign, locking down digital alumni who were key to his surprise performance in 2016 and recruiting the media production company that helped launch Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to prominence. The flurry of activity detailed by four people familiar with the campaign's thinking is the latest sign that the Vermont senator is closing in on a decision on a second run for the White House. Means of production 
Action, the filmmaking cooperative that created the viral campaign video that propelled Ocasio-Cortez's house campaign, is in talks with the Sanders team about a major role in 2020, and two people who powered Sanders' record-breaking small-dollar fundraising operation in 2016 have agreed to join a subsequent presidential bid if it materializes, according to a Sanders campaign aide, Tim DeGaris and Robin Curran, his digital fundraising director and digital production director in 2016, respectively. The aide said another pair that have helped Sanders build a digital media juggernaut out of his Senate office, media producer Armand Aviram and digital director George Park are likely to be part of his 2020 team too. The steps also suggest that Sanders has every intention of trying to reactivate the army of liberal activists he amassed two years ago, undergirded by an unapologetic democratic socialist message backed by a state-of-the-art fundraising and digital infrastructure. So make no mistake about it, Bernie 2020 is coming and it's coming really soon. Now, sources close to someone who I'm familiar with says that there may be an announcement really soon. I can't tell you how soon, but it's coming. Now, regardless if Bernie Sanders has announced yet or not, there's already a campaign to stop him from rising to prominence again, and this is by the establishment. And when I say the establishment, understand that I'm collectively referring to corporate media, centrist Democrats, think tanks who are associated with the largest Democratic Party's donors, including the Center for American Progress. So there is already a huge campaign to discredit Bernie Sanders. So the anti-Bernie 2020 campaign has already started. It's just a matter of us launching Bernie Sanders' campaign, and it's coming very soon, according to all the signs and some insiders who say that it will in fact be happening soon and that an announcement is imminent. Uh, and that's good. Uh, I'd rather him announce sooner rather than later, given that we have an announcement coming from Joe Biden, presumably within the next couple of weeks. We have individuals like Kirsten Gillibrand set to announce on Colbert that she's forming an exploratory committee. We have Kamala Harris potentially announcing an exploratory committee relatively soon. We have Elizabeth Warren already announcing an exploratory committee and campaigning in Iowa. We have Julian Castro announcing that he's running for president officially. So there's a lot of candidates already throwing their hats in the race. It's only a matter of time before Bernie Sanders announces. And for those of you getting impatient, like myself, understand that the reason why this is all taking time is because, one, he wants to make sure that he's going to do it right. And second of all, he's still working his ass off for people. I mean, he just announced a bill to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. So, I mean, he's not going to stop fighting for the people, even if he's running for president. So, understand that it's coming. It's coming very soon, and um, we should all be prepared to dedicate as much time as we can to helping him be successful in 2020. Because if we want him to win, we have to do more than just donate $27. We have to make sure that if we can, we knock on doors. We phone bank for Bernie Sanders, because if he's going to be successful... This is going to be because of all of the grassroots energy that is fueling his campaign, and that includes you watching this. So start small. Spread the word, you know, um, in your social circles. Tell your friends and family. But most importantly, sign up and get involved because that's how we are going to beat the machine and ultimately 
defeat Donald Trump in 2020. So I'm getting very excited. You know, 2020, this, this primary is going to be long. It's going to be ugly, but this is the start of something potentially really good in America, a political revolution that we desperately need because we have a political establishment that is out of touch, that is so painfully out of touch. I mean, Congress has an 18% approval rating. We have a president who doesn't care about anyone in the country, only himself. And it's time that we take the country back from the oligarchs who have seized control of government. And that starts with someone who's a revolutionary candidate like Bernie Sanders. So I hope that you will consider joining his campaign. But for those of you who already had decided to do that, um, the wait is almost over. Okay, I assure you the wait is almost over. And if I'm wrong about that, nobody will be more upset than me. So, um, Bernie 2020 is coming soon. It's just a matter of time. Hopefully, we will get an announcement before the end of the month. If you are a politically ambitious individual and you are considering a run for the White House, what do you do? Well, one of the first things you do is you try to gauge support, gauge whether or not it will be worth your effort, because running for president is something that is incredibly difficult. It's a strain not only on yourself mentally and physically, but it's a strain on your family as well. So if you're going to run, you want to make sure that there's going to be enough people who care about you and your message that it's going to make it all worthwhile. Now, there are individuals currently, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, who are all considering a run, and previously, I actually gave these individuals credit because I do think that even if I have problems with them, they are more politically astute than individuals like Joe Biden, for example, who is currently positioning himself as the anti-Bernie of the 2020 Democratic Party primary, or even Hillary Clinton, who in 2016 already struggled to court left-wing voters, but since she thought she already had those people on lock, she chose to run even further to the right by choosing a running mate who was to her right. So rather than appealing to her own base, she chose to go after moderate Republicans instead. But when it comes to this new crop of potential presidential candidates that are establishment friendly, we're talking about Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand, well, they at least realize that if you want to make it through a Democratic Party primary and actually become president, you've got to do one really important thing. You've got to win over the progressive base. And they've obviously made an effort to do just that. Kirsten Gillibrand vocalized her support for the Abolish ICE movement, and she also voted against all of Donald Trump's cabinet picks. Cory Booker proposed a bill to legalize marijuana. Kamala Harris drafted a proposal that's akin to universal basic income. And all of these potential 2020 candidates have co-sponsored Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All legislation, something that they all likely know that if they don't do, it's going to be a non-starter. They're not even going to have a chance in 2020. So them trying to court over the left of the Democratic Party is incredibly important. And I've got to give credit where it's due, even if I won't be supporting any of these Democrats, because I think that they're too friendly with their donors and the establishment. It's still commendable that they're at least attempting to do what Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden have no interest in doing, actually exciting their own base. Now, with that being said, in their attempt to court progressives, they've face-planted multiple times in that process. So, we all know about how Cory Booker face-planted 
at the beginning of 2017 when he joined Republicans to vote down a measure from Bernie Sanders that would allow Americans to import cheaper prescription drugs from Canada. I mean, he will not be able to recover from that, no matter how progressive he tries to convince us he is. Additionally, Kirsten Gillibrand backed a brazenly unconstitutional anti-BDS bill, and she only backed away from it once she realized how much she pissed people off. Now, Kamala Harris hasn't necessarily done anything monumentally idiotic like Cory Booker or Kirsten Gillibrand, but she has proven that, like them, she is unwilling to buck the status quo, and she's also voted to increase Trump's military budget multiple times, as did her colleagues. So even if it's the case that they're all trying to court progressives, which is important, it's what they should be doing, it's clear that their political instincts are off. They're off nonetheless, and it's not just that they're off by a little bit. They are still not really sure how to cultivate trust among the progressive base. So at the beginning of this video, we talked about what you do if you want to run for president. You try to gauge support. Now, the question is, who do you gauge support from? Who do you talk to to determine if there's support for your potential presidential campaign? Well, if you ask me, I'd say, well, I need to talk to grassroots activists, organizations fighting for civil rights and human rights, anti-war organizations. I need to talk with unions to make sure that they're on board with my presidential campaign and that there would be support there. But what did these three individuals do? They chose to gauge support from Wall Street, and on January 4th, Kirsten Gillibrand was the first one to reach out to Wall Street executives in order to gauge how supportive they'd be of a potential 2020 campaign in the event she launched one. And just four days later, after Kirsten Gillibrand took heat for that, we found out that Kamala Harris and Cory Booker also did the same. Now, in an article for CNBC, Brian Schwartz explains, billionaire and Blackstone chief operating officer Jonathan Gray, Robert Wolf, CEO and founder of economic advisory firm 32 Advisors, and Mark Gallagher, a founder of private investment firm Centerbridge Partners, are just a few of the Democratic financiers who have spoken with 2020 hopefuls about a wide range of topics, including the upcoming campaign, according to people with direct knowledge of the matter. Wolf, a former advisor to former President Barack Obama, including as a member of the President's Economic Recovery Advisory Board, said he had been in touch with 2020 hopefuls but declined to name the individual lawmakers. I am meeting with possible candidates often but don't want to name names until he or she announces, Wolf said in a text message to CNBC. However, people familiar with the talks say Wolf's contact list has included Gillibrand along with New Jersey's Booker and California's Harris. Wolf has a history of backing the three senators. He wrote a check to Gillibrand for $2,700 in 2018 and donated to Harris's campaign in 2016. In 2014, he backed Booker's Senate campaign. Wolf did not return follow-up requests for comment, and a spokeswoman for Harris did not return repeated requests for comment. Booker also recently met with a top New York donor who described the encounter to CNBC on the condition of anonymity. I had tea a while ago with Corey. This person 
Hansen said. The meetings aren't officially about running, but of course, they are about running in 2020. Booker seemed to be trying to see whether this financer could help raise money for a White House run, according to the person. A spokesman for Booker did not reply to emails requesting comment. Gray, a billionaire and top Democratic donor, has had numerous private discussions with Gillibrand and other lawmakers who might be looking to jump into the race, according to people familiar with the conversations. Last year, Gray contributed $2,700 to Gillibrand's primary and general re-election campaigns, the most an individual donor can give directly to a campaign. In 2015, he donated the same amount to Booker. Gray also gave $600,000 to Senate Majority PAC, a group dedicated to helping Democrats win the majority in the U.S. Senate, according to Federal Election Commission records. So let's just pause there and reflect on what's happening. These are three individuals that all swore off PAC contributions, but nonetheless, they're still cozy with their former donors. And those same donors who were big donors to them are still donating the max contribution limit, $2,700. That's the federal limit. They're still donating it. Now, I'm not necessarily concerned with that because $2,700 isn't necessarily going to buy someone off, but it's the fact that they're still associating themselves with Wall Street executives. It makes you biased by associating yourself with these individuals. It's the people you hang around with on the cocktail circuit that influences how you'll be behaving if you decide to run. Now, there's another Democrat that I'm not necessarily focusing on here who may or may not be a presidential contender. His name is Sherrod Brown, someone who's been vehemently anti-Wall Street, he also met with Wall Street. Now, the reason why I didn't focus on him is because he's been a little bit up in the air as to whether or not he'd run, but I can tell you this, he's someone who is doing less than these more establishment-centrist Democrats to court over progressives. What has he not done to court us that's the most important? He has not co-sponsored Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. So, Sherrod Brown is a non-starter for me, but I do want to be fair and tell you the response of at least one of these senators who saw the article and decided to kind of push back. And that's from Kirsten Gillibrand, who said this, What's important are the facts of my record. She co-sponsored the financial transaction tax. She supports reinstating a new Glass-Steagall Act and voted against the bank bailout twice. And look, that's a fair point. But it begs the question, if you did all of these anti-Wall Street things, then why would you even find the need at all to, quote, gauge their interest in you running? Shouldn't they just by default be against you if you're so against them, if your voting record is against them? I mean, it's because something else is going on. Just swearing off PAC money isn't enough. If you're still going to associate with these individuals, then there's going to be a trust deficit that you will not be able to recover from. You will not be able to win over progressives if you do things like this. And this is exactly why we don't trust you. And when establishment-minded individuals ask progressives like myself, well, look, you, you said it was about the policy, Mike. Well, now you have these individuals, people of color, women all getting on board with the agenda of Bernie Sanders, Medicare for all, legalizing marijuana. Why won't you back them? Why are you still choosing to back the straight white male over these candidates? It's because of things like this. It's because I can't take a chance on someone who takes a particular political position for purposes of political expediency. I want someone with the three-decade track record. If I have an option 
to go with Bernie in 2020, and we will, then I'm going with the person who set the terms of the debate, who raised our collective consciousness when it comes to issues like Medicare for All. So that's what they're going to say. But understand that you have to show them articles like this and videos like this that, dem that demonstrate we still don't trust these individuals because, again, even if it's admirable and I give them credit where it's due, that they're actually doing what Joe Biden won't and Hillary Clinton didn't do in trying to appeal to progressives, well, you still have got to fully walk the walk. And they're not doing that fully. And they're trying to appeal to progressives, but they still have these missteps and occasionally they'll face plan. It's great that you're on board with Medicare for All, but that doesn't make you a leader. And we need a leader who's actually going to give us a political revolution that's on par with Reagan's right-wing revolution. We need to shift the Overton window back to the left, and we're not going to do that by electing someone who kowtows to Wall Street. So, during this primary, I will not be supporting these individuals because they've made it clear that even if they want to appeal to us, they're not loyal to us. They're still loyal to their donors. They're still loyal to the large contributors that still give to the Democratic Party who hang out with them at cocktail parties in D.C. These, these are limousine liberals who aren't looking out for you. Rather, they're politically ambitious. And that's why I'm not going to be supporting them over Bernie Sanders. There's an article that Politico published on, I think it was Friday, and it was about Ocasio-Cortez and the response she's receiving from Democrats in the House. And this is probably my favorite Ocasio-Cortez related news yet because it really demonstrates just how shitty members of the Democratic Party are because we all know that there's a number of centrist right-wing Democrats in the House of Representatives that would probably switch teams and be Republicans in the event Republicans moderated and became at least relatively socially liberal. But they don't like the left-wing economic agenda that individuals like Ocasio-Cortez are talking about. And because Ocasio-Cortez is bringing this level of enthusiasm to Congress, well, it's kind of making them look shitty because their goal is to just coast. They want to make sure that they do the bare minimum and get rewarded by their constituents for it because they're less shitty than Republicans. And that's true, but what does Ocasio-Cortez do? She comes into Congress, and she does so much. She's so passionate about fighting for a progressive agenda, a Green New Deal, Medicare for All, a 70% marginal tax rate. And it gets the constituents of these other members of the House to think, wait, why isn't my representative more like that? Why are they not making headlines pushing for these really bold ideas. So they don't like that because they love just coasting. They like to just sit there and be a little bit less shitty than Republicans and then get rewarded for it. But Ocasio-Cortez is raising the bar and making them look bad in return. So the political article I referenced earlier, it talks about 20 Democrats all in a coordinated effort trying to rein in Ocasio-Cortez to make sure that she ignores the shittiness of her own party and instead turns her ire toward Republicans. Now, I'm not going to read you the article itself, but I do want to get to some of the quotes in this article because I think they are just priceless. So, the first one, quote, I'm sure Miss Cortez means well, but there's almost an outstanding rule. 
Don't attack your own people, said Emmanuel Cleaver. We just don't need sniping in our Democratic caucus. That is, unless you have an independent who caucuses with Democrats, then snipe away. But if it's someone who actually is making the party be introspective for the first time in decades, well, we don't want to criticize ourselves. We don't, we don't want to look in the mirror. We want to just criticize Republicans because they're the ones who are shitty. They're the bad guys, not us. And what Ocasio-Cortez is doing is she's calling them out for their shittiness. And there needs to be people within the Democratic Party that critiques their own team. Because politics isn't just about team politics. It's about accomplishing goals. It's about passing policies that actually help the American people. And if you don't have people like Ocasio-Cortez who are going to herd them back to the left, then, I mean, they're just going to get increasingly shitty. And because we haven't had a figure like Ocasio-Cortez, we've seen that the Overton window has shifted to the right because they are getting increasingly shitty. But some more quotes for you. She needs to decide, does she want to be an effective legislator or just continue being a Twitter star, said one House Democrat who's in lockstep with Ocasio-Cortez's ideology. There's a difference between being an activist and a lawmaker in Congress. Yeah, we'll agree to disagree there. And furthermore, I doubt that this individual, who remained anonymous, is in lockstep with her policies. Because if you truly cared about the issues, then you have to be an activist in Congress. You don't just say, oh, well, you know, these issues I cared about, I have to put them aside and stop being an activist and disactivate or deactivate rather um, all those things I cared about because now I'm a lawmaker. So now I have to be a grown up. Fuck out of here. That's a cop out. And this person is parroting a right wing attack on her, saying that she cares more about being a celebrity than actually being an effective legislator. And what's implied in that is well, if she wants to be effective, then shut the fuck up, stop attacking us, or we're going to make sure that we tie your hands. You don't get on any committees. We make sure that we marginalize you in Congress. That's essentially the underlying implication there. Now, they're smart enough to not be explicit about that, but that's exactly what you should take away from that. I'm not reading too much into it. I'm not embellishing. That's essentially what's being said to Ocasio-Cortez. They said this after she protested in Nancy Pelosi's office. Does she want to be an effective legislator or just make a name for herself being a Twitter star? Well, look. If you amass a following, if you have 2.2 million Twitter followers, then that in and of itself is a tool she can use. Because do you really want to piss off the individual who has 2.2 million Twitter followers, who's activated the grassroots, who's willing to protest in your office? I don't think you do. And we're going to get to that because it's clear they are afraid of that. Another quote here. I think she needs to give herself an opportunity to know her colleagues and to give herself a sense of the chemistry of the body before passing judgment on anyone or anything, Representative Yvette Clark, a fellow New York Democrat, said. Except we can pass judgment because you guys have an 18% approval rating. Also, she's new here, feeling her way around, added Representative Kurt Schrader of Oregon. She doesn't understand how the place works yet. Oh, she doesn't understand. It's not you guys who have been in Congress for decades and have an 18% approval rating. Understand this. We fucking hate you. We hate all of you in Congress because you're not doing anything for us. You're doing nothing. And you don't get to constantly use Republicans as an excuse for you not doing anything because you could be raising our collective consciousness about issues like a Green New Deal, Medicare for all, while you don't have power like AOC is doing, but you're not doing that, so shut the fuck up. 
Instead of telling her to shut up, you shut the fuck up because you're not doing anything and you don't know how this works because in the event Congress was actually fun functioning properly, you'd have a higher approval rating than 18%. Another quote here, it's not unreasonable for people to wonder whether she will come after them, said Representative Grace Menk. I'm choosing not to focus on if she's going to run someone against someone, but by seeing how we can more effectively work with her and bring her ideas to the table. Now that was in reference to her primarying corporate Democrats and her associating with the organization Justice Democrats who got her elected. She came in by primarying a corporate Democrat, so of course she's still going to support that. But she recently was vying for a spot on the Ways and Means Committee, which is a very powerful committee, and that actually rubbed some of them the wrong way because the thought was, oh well how dare she? This newcomer wants to leapfrog us and get on the Ways and Means Committee all because she has grassroots support? And that's basically what someone said. One anonymous lawmaker stated, It totally pissed off everyone. You don't get picked for committees by who your grassroots supporters are. So they absolutely cannot stand her. And it's, again, because she's making them look shitty. When we get Democrats like AOC and she collectively raises the bar, they have to start performing. They have to start performing. If you've ever worked in sales before and there's like a new salesman or saleswoman that comes in and they just start outselling you, then your bosses are going to look at you and say, well, you're doing something wrong. Look at this person. So that's what AOC is doing to them and they hate it. And not only do they hate it, they're literally afraid of her. And this is my favorite part of the article because it just, <laughs> she's accomplishing what I hoped she'd deliver and that is scaring them so that way they get their act together so people are afraid of her said one senior democratic aide two house democratic sources compared her use of twitter to donald trump's just as congressional republicans constantly withhold criticism of the president out of fear he'll unleash a tweet at them some democrats have done the same with ocasio cortez so this is why some of them are choosing to remain anonymous because they're, quote, living in fear <laughs> that she's going to shoot off a mean tweet. Well, do you want to know who doesn't have to live in fear? Lawmakers who aren't actually garbage. Ro Khanna. People who are actually representing the will of of the American people. Everything that she is advocating for, almost every single policy is supported by a majority of Americans. Green New Deal, overwhelming support among Democrats, independents, and Republicans. Medicare for all, more than 70% of the country supports Medicare for all. Almost 90% of Democrats support Medicare for all and 52% of Republicans now support Medicare for all. So rather than trying to quote rein her in and lambasting her and anonymously firing shots at her because you're afraid she's going to fire off a mean tweet at you, here's an idea. Maybe learn from her. Because all of this enthusiasm surrounding Ocasio-Cortez, it's there for a reason. Bernie Sanders is the most popular senator in America for a reason and she has garnered a gigantic following and had this meteoric rise for a reason it's because they're doing something that is unprecedented in this day and age they're actually listening to the grassroots and trying to follow through on a worker-friendly agenda
So as you all know, last year there were three different statewide teacher strikes in red states across the country. There were strikes that took place in Arizona, Oklahoma, and West Virginia, and I'm really happy to report that the teacher strike is not going to end with 2018 because it is continuing into 2019 and it's now spilling over into its first blue state. And that state is California because there are teachers across the state that just went on strike this week in the rain. And for more on this, we go to CBS Los Angeles who reports in the first walkout since 1989, the 30,000 teachers represented by United Teachers of Los Angeles went on strike after 21 months of failed negotiations. The strike impacts 480,000 students served by the LAUSD, the second largest school district in the nation. At a separate morning news conference, UTLA president Alex Caputo-Pearl addressed fellow union members, parents, and students at John Marshall High School. Here we are on a rainy day in the richest country in the world, in the richest state in the country, in a state that's as blue as it can be, and in a city rife with millionaires where teachers have to go on strike to get the basics for our students, Caputo-Pearl said. Now, if you just think this is only about teachers requesting higher pay, then that would be an oversimplification because this is also about the conditions which are way worse than I could have even imagined, you know, because it's been a while since I've attended public school, but I can't even comprehend how bad the situation is, and I couldn't really until it was put in perspective by a documentary released by Vice where the teachers explain what's going on, and it is ugly. A lot of our schools don't have a full-time nurse. Um, we don't have enough counselors. That raises huge ethical concerns because so many of our students are living in poverty and our job as a school is to respond to those needs. And do you feel like you can do that given the circumstances right now? It isn't easy to create an environment where students feel comfortable. So when you learn that the district has a reserve of nearly $2 billion, the question is why isn't that money being used to fully fund our schools and to actually meet the needs of our students? We the people, not the politicians, are still the boss. The underfunding of LA schools goes back to the taxpayers' revolt of 1978, when California voters passed Proposition 13. The ballot measure capped local property taxes and as a result, gutted school budgets statewide. California now ranks near the bottom in the country on per-pupil spending and student-teacher ratios. So when the LA Teachers Union asked its members to authorize a strike last year, the response was overwhelming. 98% voted yes. There's a reason for that. While LA schools are struggling, a lot of teachers believe that rather than fix them, the school district would prefer to abandon them to charters and other privatization schemes. Over the years, the LA school district has slashed the budget for basic support staff. There are now fewer than 400 nurses for roughly 900 school campuses. Stephanie Yellen-Mednick is a school nurse in the San Fernando Valley who's helped organize her colleagues for the strike. She used to work at one school full-time. Now she splits her time between four. I think we're a little nervous about this and very scared in a way because it's not something we really want to do. 
It's pretty surprising to hear that there are so many schools that only have a nurse come in once a week. Once a week. It's like a little bit, how does that even work? I mean, what happens if the nurse is only there on a Thursday? What happens when a kid gets sick on a Monday? I mean, Don't have an emergency on a Monday. <laughs> it's not just the nurse just being there one day a week. We have no confidentiality in many of our offices. At one of the schools, the nurse works in a hallway or under the stairwell, a closet, the bathroom. I honestly, I watched that. And my response was that I was speechless. I was legitimately speechless. The situation is absolutely incomprehensible. Again, we live in the richest country in the world. And this is the condition that students and teachers have to put up with where they can't even get a nurse five days a week. So if you get sick on a Monday and the nurse is only there on Thursday, then you're screwed. And it's not even like they have actual quarters for a nurse. They have to do it under staircases and bathrooms. This is absolutely insane. I mean, these are standards that are likely on par with some third world countries, and it's not acceptable there too. I think all students around the globe need a chance. They need an education that actually is going to function, right? That they need a, a school that is functional. But here in the richest country in the world in california they have to do nursing related activity in bathrooms and under stairs what the fuck is going on how can donald trump complain about the border crisis and how that's a national emergency but this isn't and this is just one of the many issues that capture how fucked up our country has become flint they don't have clean drinking water in 2019. No clean drinking water. Our infrastructure is crumbling before our very eyes. Nurses have to balance their schedule between multiple schools. And we have a president who's worried about this manufactured border crisis. I mean... The state of America is embarrassing. You can't, with a straight face, continue to tell me that this is the greatest country on earth when we have students who can't see a school nurse because they happen to get sick on a certain day of the week. This is absolutely insane. And the fact that this isn't a national outrage, it boggles my mind. I mean, people certainly care about this, but I mean... How can this not be higher on the minds of people? And certainly media is part to blame, but credit where it's due, MSNBC actually did do a segment covering the teacher strike, and I think that that's important, right? But I mean, just the fact that this is happening, we have fallen so far that this is embarrassing. So, you know, without question, I unequivocally stand in solidarity with the teachers, and they deserve to get everything that they're demanding. Now, of course, there's fear-mongering by state officials saying, look, if we give them everything that they want, that's basically going to bankrupt the state. How many millionaires live in LA? Tax the fuck out of them. I'm not talking about a 70% marginal tax rate. We're talking about a 99% marginal tax rate after all income after 5 million. Do that if you have to and take that extreme measure until this situation, this crisis is ameliorated. Okay, because if these millionaires cry, so be it. The students are what matters. The future of America is what matters. So let's not even try to be kind with unreasonable people, 
raise the revenue needed to make sure that these students can actually see a nurse, just the bare minimum of what's expected of a public education. But the reason why these schools are getting terrible is because lawmakers don't care. They're pushing for charter schools and privatization of education so that way the rich can profit off of it. Unacceptable, completely unacceptable. So this is just seeing this documentary and seeing the protests and really hearing the teachers describe the situation is infuriating to me. How can this go on in the richest country in America? It's embarrassing. Bernie Sanders is probably one of the few politicians in America that says things that are completely common sense that everyday Americans agree with, but for some reason, no other senators are saying this. He's saying what we're all thinking, but what everyone else in Congress in a position of power is too afraid to say. And he did it again when it comes to military spending in an op-ed that he wrote for In These Times, where he argues several months ago, Democrats with virtually no opposition gave President Trump every nickel that he wanted in increased defense spending. At a time when our infrastructure is crumbling, when public schools lack the resources to provide a quality education for our kids, when 30 million people have no health insurance, there were very few Democrats opposed to Republican efforts to increase military spending by $165 billion over two years. Democrats, for good reason, vehemently oppose almost everything Trump proposes. But when he asks for a huge increase in military spending, there are almost no no voices in dissent. Why is that? Do we really have to spend more on the military than the next 10 nations combined, most of which are our allies? Why do we dramatically increase funding for the military when the Department of Defense remains the only major government agency not to have undertaken a comprehensive audit? Why is there so little discussion about the billions in waste, fraud, and cost overruns at the Pentagon? Here's a truth that you don't often hear about in the newspapers, on television, or in the halls of Congress, but it's a truth we must face. Far too often, American intervention and the use of American military power have produced unintended consequences that have caused incalculable harm. Yes, it is reasonably easy to engineer the overthrow of a government. It is far harder, however, to know the long-term impact that that action will have. On March 20th, 2003, the war in Iraq, which I had strongly opposed, began, and the bombs started falling on Baghdad. Today, it is widely acknowledged that the Iraq war was a tragedy of enormous magnitude and that our entry into that war was based on a series of falsehoods. Despite what the Bush administration said, Iraq had no role in the 9-11 attacks and it did not possess weapons of mass destruction that threatened the United States. As we now know, that war created a cascade of instability around the region that we are still dealing with today in Syria and elsewhere and will be for many years to come. Indeed, had it not been for the Iraq war, the Islamic State would almost certainly not exist. The war deepened hostilities between Sunni and Shiite communities in Iraq and elsewhere. It exacerbated a regional struggle for power between Saudi Arabia and Iran and their proxies in places like Syria, Lebanon, and Yemen, and it undermined American diplomatic efforts to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That war was created by a Republican administration. Now, let me tell you about a Democratic administration and an earlier conflict that began on similar 
similarly false pretenses. In 1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson cited an attack on a U.S. ship in the Gulf of Tonkin as a pretext for escalating the U.S. intervention in Vietnam. We now know from declassified recordings that Johnson himself doubted that the USS Maddox had come under fire on August 4, 1964, but he still used that alleged attack to push for the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, which authorized him to escalate U.S. military involvement in Vietnam. Johnson's administration consistently misled both Congress and the American people into that war, just as the Bush administration misled us into the war in Iraq. The lesson that must be learned from all of this is that foreign policy disasters occur when presidents refuse to tell their people the truth and when Congress abdicates its constitutional responsibility to get that truth. So he's kind of making multiple arguments simultaneously. On one hand, he's saying, why are we spending so much on the military. A huge chunk of all discretionary spending is on the military budget. Now, the discretionary budget is only one part of our total budget, but still, when it comes to discretionary spending, things we can control, why are we not using that money for healthcare, education, infrastructure? Why are we still feeding the military-industrial complex when we spend more than the next 10 countries combined, most of which, as he stated in the article, are allies. He also talks about how regime change wars don't work, or they create instability. He also talks about the need for Congress to take back control and its authority to declare wars. We've allowed the president to unilaterally wage war, and what he's saying is that we need to get back to the constitutional requirement that Congress has to declare a war, and understand that he isn't just talking about Vietnam and Iraq. He actually lays out a lot of foreign policy blunders and interventionist um, regime, regime change operations by the United States. For example, he talks about how the United States overthrew Iran's democratically elected leader, Mohammad Mossadegh. He talks about that in this article. He talks about other failures of U.S. foreign policy and U.S. imperialism in this article. So what he's saying here, all of these arguments, when you step back and look at them in, to in their totality, it's very clear that he's saying things that are completely unacceptable in Washington, D.C. What he's saying is bucking D.C. orthodoxy, but it's something that has to be said because it's painfully obvious. How is this not... The default position, what Bernie Sanders is saying here, should be embedded in the Democratic Party's platform. It should be echoed by every single sitting senator, by every single Democrat in the House. But the fact that they go along with it, with Donald Trump's military increases without question, and then try to claim to be the resistance, is fucking hypocritical. I mean, look at Tammy Duckworth. She's someone who likes to pretend to be part of the resistance, who's so strong against Donald Trump, she calls him President Bone Spurs, but what did she do? She voted not just for his military budget, but to increase his powers to spy on Americans without a warrant. So, what Bernie Sanders, I think, is saying in some is that what we need is for Democrats to actually resist Trump where it matters, resist Trump where they can make a difference, and giving him every single nickel of his fucking ridiculous mil military budget, that doesn't make you part of the resistance if you go along with that. That makes you an assistance. You're an accomplice to what Donald Trump is doing. You're an accomplice to the crimes that are being committed by our military in Pakistan, in Yemen, in Somalia. So I like that Bernie Sanders 
is starting to really, I mean, he's giving us a sense of what his foreign policy will be in 2020, but what he's got to do is he needs to take a strong stand when it comes to the drone program. You've got to end the drone program 100%. Back in 2015, he vocalized support for it, saying he would probably continue the drone program that Obama started. Now, would he scale it back? Sure, but you need to end it, Bernie. So I want him to speak on that. And additionally, he needs to adapt to what progressives want when it comes to Israel-Palestine. If you don't start seriously considering BDS, then how can you look us in the face and tell us that you want there to ever be peace between Israel and Palestine. Because what stopped apartheid in South Africa was boycotts, divestments, and sanctions. So human rights activists, including Jewish human rights activists, are now calling for BDS, not because they hate Israel or Jewish people, it's because they want peace and they want Palestinian human rights to be respected. And if Bernie Sanders, a Jewish American, perhaps the first Jewish president, were to take that stand, imagine how powerful that would be. Now, I don't want to shit on Bernie because what he's doing here is absolutely great, but I just, I like where he's going with this, right? I like that the way his foreign policy is taking shape, it's much more progressive than the indications that he gave to us in 2015. Seems like he's moved in a positive direction, but I just want him to have, you know, a a very progressive foreign policy record. And this is certainly a good start. So credit where it's due. I just wish that other people would say the same thing because I don't think that this is something that's controversial. It may be controversial in Washington, D.C., you know, among pundits in the mainstream media, but it's not controversial to normal Americans. We're all thinking it. We just need someone who actually has power to say it. And he did that, which is absolutely admirable. Uh, Mike uh, Figueredo. 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 MSNBC's Chuck Todd, host of Meet the Press, really, really hates Bernie Sanders. Now, he hasn't explicitly said this, but I think it's evident. We all know it. It's an open secret at this point that he despises Bernie Sanders, and he is looking for any and all stories that could possibly discredit and ultimately defeat Bernie in 2020. And I've got two clips for you that demonstrate this as clear as day. Now, the first clip is honestly borderline self-parody because throughout the midst of this segment, this anti-Bernie segment, they interrupt the segment to interject an ad from Boeing. Of all the advertisers, they chose Boeing and it's just, it's glorious. So take a look and then we'll come back and discuss this particular segment because I think it is absolutely just, it, it, it really reveals their true intentions over at MSNBC. When we come back endgame and why the second time around is looking a lot tougher for Bernie Sanders. Coming up, Endgame, brought to you by Boeing, continuing our mission to connect, protect, explore, and inspire. All right, before I go, Cornell, you're the pollster in the bunch. I want to put up a quick straw poll that we had from Daily Coast. This is our only 2020 comment. <laughs> We're going to get to this thing. And it showed here, these are uh, sort of <clears throat> activist Democrats. I put this up here, the top five, Bernie Sanders sits at 11. Four years ago, Bernie Sanders had nearly 70% of these folks. What's going on here? Well, you also remember that Michelle Bachman won the straw polls at the straw poll. Uh, A lot of what Bernie Sanders, I think, represented was the the choice against Hillary Clinton in the the primary. I think some of that was more a a vehicle for anti-Hillary than a vehicle for pro-Bernie. She'll say new is winning, that's for sure. (laughs) All right, that's all I have for today. And uh, that's about what you'd 
would expect from, you know, a segment that was brought to you by Boeing. <laughs> it's just, I mean, wow, they're so brazen. Maybe they thought of the optics and just thought, you know, we'll roll with it anyway. But I mean, they did it. Now, I love this because he really, I mean, it's its evident, right, that he's grasping for straws because he wants you to think, and I think he's really trying to convince himself that Bernie Sanders, Bernie 2020, is done. You can already stick a fork in it because they did a straw poll. The Daily Coast conducted a straw poll from activist Democrats who he implied were progressives, which they're not. And since Bernie came in fifth place in this particular poll, he wants you to think that this is it. If he came in fifth place from a progressive outlet like the Daily Coast, then surely there's not going to be a chance for him or any room for him in the 2020 Democratic Party primary. Now, let me just ask you this, Chuck, before we move on. When you talk about the supposedly progressive outlet called the Daily Coast, are you talking about the same outlet that is run by establishment bootlicker Marcos Mulitzas, who's literally so proud of the fact that he creepily delivered thousands of roses to Nancy Pelosi that he actually pinned the picture of him doing it to his goddamn Twitter page? Is that the progressive outlet that you are referring to, Chuck Todd? Because I just want to be clear and make sure we're on the same page and that we're both referring to the same, quote, progressive, unquote, outlet. <laughs> <laughs> now i could get into the rest of the gripes that i have with this but i'm not gonna do that because david dole of the rational national my brother from another mother actually did an amazing job outlining the absurdity of that clip and how boeing who sponsored that clip actually has it out for bernie sanders so i will link to that down below you have to check it out if you haven't already seen that now this may surprise you but there's another clip featuring Chuck Todd trying to smear and discredit Bernie Sanders. But this one is a bit more nefarious. Take a look. Welcome back tonight in 2020 Vision. Bernie Sanders is apologizing again, this time for allegations of harassment on his 2016 presidential campaign. Could this derail his chances of another presidential bid? Take a listen to this apology. What they experienced was absolutely unacceptable and certainly not what a progressive campaign or any campaign uh, should be about. Bernie Sanders is facing backlash after new allegations of sexual harassment against one of his former top campaign aides. According to Politico, his convention floor leader, Robert Becker, is accused of forcibly kissing a junior staffer. The woman only came forward when Becker recently contacted her to be part of the team for another Sanders presidential campaign. So I certainly apologize to any woman who felt that she was not treated appropriately. And of course, if I run, we will do better on next time. This isn't the first time that Sanders has had to answer for misconduct by male staffers on his 2016 presidential campaign. Two stories in the last month detailed a quote, pervasive culture of toxic masculinity. And just to be clear, you seem to indicate that you did not know at the time about the allegations. Is that correct? I, yes, I was a little bit busy running around uh, the country trying to make the case. Boy, is that a tough answer to defend, of course, because if you're running to be president of the United States, you can't manage a campaign. How do you manage the country concepts? That's a tough answer to defend. These stories, Elizabeth Warren's successful early rollout in this race, and politically speaking, 
No potential 2020 candidates had a worse start to 2019, it looks like, than Bernie Sanders. No potential 2020 candidates had a worse start than Bernie Sanders. Really, Chuck? Is that based on facts? Or is that what you want to believe? Because there's been no single candidate who's declared yet that had a nationwide call, 400 different house parties across the nation, all of which asked him to run for president. Has any other candidate, Elizabeth Warren, Tulsi Gabbard, Kirsten Gillibrand, Richard Ojeda, has any other candidate had that? Has any other candidate had even a fraction of the grassroots support already as Bernie? So what he's saying there, it's not the truth. It's just something that he wants you to believe. And what I find interesting is that these propagandists are showing their cards a little bit too early because he says, could this derail Bernie Sanders' chances of another presidential bid? I bet that he hopes it does, but he says that before he even talks about the article. So, I mean, if you, if you want to discuss the implications of the New York Times article, then you can do that. I think that's legitimate. That's fine. But if you obviously are gleefully hoping that this derails his chances, then you are demonstrating to us that you have a bias. Now, he also ended that uh, segment by saying, boy, is that a tough answer to defend? Of course, because if you're running to be president of the United States, you can't manage a campaign. How do you manage a country? Now, I wonder if Chuck Todd is going to ask that same question when it comes to Kamala Harris, who just last month had a top aide resign due to allegations of sexual harassment. I wonder if he asked that same question back in 2016 when it comes to Hillary Clinton, who did nothing about sexual harassment in 2008 and also had the same thing happen in 2016. You see, the reason why this is so nefarious is because what people like Chuck Todd and members of the media want you to believe is that sexual harassment, it's a Bernie problem. Nobody else had this problem when in actuality, it's not a Bernie problem. It's an America problem. It's a problem that we have in this country culturally. The problem is toxic masculinity. The problem is sexism in the workplace everywhere. It probably is happening at MSNBC. In fact, I'd be surprised if it weren't happening at MSNBC. So to suggest that this is something that exclusively affected Bernie Sanders is incredibly disingenuous. It's outright propaganda. But I'm not going to go through and tell you what I think about him and why it's so nefarious because the actual woman, Juliana Delaro Velez, who was cited in that New York Times article, spoke out and she summed up the situation better than I ever could. She writes in an op-ed for The Intercept, last week my experience and that of some of my female co-workers became the focus of a New York Times story on the sexual harassment and sexism that took place in the 2016 Bernie Sanders campaign. I told my story to bring attention to the sexist environment that is unfortunately endemic to most workspaces, including political campaigns. However, I was disheartened to discover that the takeaway by many pundits was not that sexism and harassment is pervasive, but that Sanders was somehow uniquely culpable. I was also struck by some of the messages and tweets calling into question the character of the women who spoke out. As was the case throughout the 2016 campaign season, my personal experiences as a woman of color were sublimated to serve an establishment media narrative that pretends the progressive movement is all white 
white, all male, and runs counter to the interests of women and people of color. But my story should not be taken to confirm the Bernie Bro mythology. It should be taken to confirm the pervasiveness of sexism in professional life and distill the hard truths that all campaigns should learn from. It's not as if the Sanders campaign alone is nursing the last vestiges of sexism and sexual harassment in the political sphere. Both were reportedly features of Hillary Clinton's 2008 campaign. During her first run at the White House, Clinton's campaign chose to retain a senior advisor who reportedly harassed a young woman repeatedly rather than fire him. And just last month, an aide for Senator Kamala Harris resigned after it was reported that he settled a sexual harassment lawsuit for $400,000. For one, the corporate media unfairly focuses on Sanders, casting the harassment that happened within his campaign much differently than similar cases with other campaigns, implicating his personal ethics in a way that they've declined to to do with other politicians. Sanders recently apologized and acknowledged that his 2016 campaign could have handled sexual harassment and sexism claims better, and in his 2018 re-election campaign, he reportedly instituted sharper protocols like better hiring, training, and designating an independent firm that staff could utilize to report sexism and harassment. But new allegations of sexual harassment in his 2016 campaign have since surfaced, indicating the depth of the problem was likely deeper than most new. Now, Sanders should take the rare step of setting up an independent investigation into the 2016 allegations. Now, that was said perfectly. How can you hold Bernie Sanders to a different standard and pretend as if this same phenomenon isn't prevalent in other campaigns? How could you do that? It's almost as if propagandists in the mainstream media have an agenda to smear and discredit Bernie Sanders at all costs, even if that means exploiting the misfortune of some women who served on Bernie Sanders' campaign. That is disgusting. And look, I'll be fair and say that I could see how Bernie Sanders could be painted in a negative light if he knew about these allegations at the time and did nothing, or if he knew about them and chose to trivialize them and didn't take them seriously. But he is taking them seriously. Not only did he apologize, but he met with female staffers. He set up an independent firm that 2018 and 2020 staffers can go to in order to report instances of sexual harassment. And knowing Bernie Sanders, he's likely going to take her advice and set up an independent investigation into the 2016 campaign. Because that's the way that Bernie Sanders is. He genuinely cares about this issue. He's been a feminist his whole life. So, of course, he's going to take what women are saying to heart and try to improve. Can you say the same for Hillary Clinton in 2008, who chose to retain someone who sexually harassed staffers? Now, I don't want to just have this get reduced down to a whataboutism you know, it's clear that this is something that is a problem that as Americans we need to address, but I hate how the mainstream media conveniently ignores all these other stories about how prevalent sexual harassment in the workplace and political spaces are, but they love to just chide Bernie Sanders for something that they're saying he's culpable for, or at least implying he's culpable for. Well, here's the thing, Chuck. If you're going to be a propagandist, you've got to do better. You've got to be a little bit more subtle because it's easy for us to see through the bullshit. But unfortunately for Chuck Todd and others at MSNBC, nobody takes you seriously. Why? Because we all know that 
MSNBC hosts, they are put on this leash. And we know this because the late Ed Schultz, who was a progressive, he kind of blew the lid off of your operation. When he tried to cover Bernie Sanders, he explained how he got a call from the president of MSNBC saying, no, you're not going to do that. You are not allowed to cover Bernie Sanders. So I will leave you with that because I think it's more relevant now going into 2020 and the 2019 Democratic Party primary than ever. There was more oversight and more direction given to me on content at MSNBC than there ever has been here at RT. And I think that it's very sad that that story is not getting out. I think it's uh, many times I was told what to lead with on MSNBC. Many times I was told what I was not going to do, and I've got a story that had I not been involved in it, I would have never believed it. Uh, and Phil Griffin, who I consider a friend to this day, was was a watchdog, far more than anything I am exposed to here at RT America. Did he tell you what to say? Did he tell you an angle to take? Often. Cable news is already so bad that it is bordering on it becoming unwatchable because their pro-corporate establishment-friendly centrist to center-right narrative is just, it's obnoxious. We're not getting the stories that would actually inform us and make us more knowledgeable before heading into the voting booth. It's always sensationalist stories. It's a focus on things that aren't very important, like mean tweets and naughty words, and it's just fucking garbage. But for all the gripes that we have about mainstream media, well, guess what? It's about to get a lot worse because they just hired people with absolutely nothing meaningful to say who no one in the country wants to hear more from and that includes john Kasich, who recently signed with cnn as a senior political commentator as well as resistance hero jeff flake who supposedly is anti-Trump, but voted with him more than 80% of the time, who is in talks with CBS for a potential position, and last but certainly not least, MSNBC's Morning Joe just hired Claire McCaskill, a loser, as a political analyst. And my only question is, why would you do this? Why? Who wants to hear from these people? They have nothing of value to say at all and Claire McCaskill is a political analyst how can she analyze something when she was painfully wrong she keeps implying that if Democrats want to win then they can't get too cuckoo and be too crazy they've got to you know stay in the center right and she went full Trump during her last election just in this last election she literally said this about the migrant caravan quote stop them at the border that's what she said. She went full Trump, actually used xenophobia as a means of propelling herself, and she still lost. But yet she's still talking about how Democrats can win. She's still suggesting that her strategy, even if it's a proven failure, is what Democrats need to do. They don't need to appeal to their base and excite their own base. They need to win over moderate Republicans that don't exist. But, I mean, it, all of these... Almost all of these senators who are Republican light 
Joe Donnelly, Heidi Heidkamp, Claire McCaskill, they were wiped out. The only one who managed to survive was Joe Manchin for some reason. But I wouldn't be surprised if he got wiped out in six years. So nobody takes these people seriously. Nobody. And they have nothing of value to bring to the table. But yet, because they were in Congress and mainstream media outlets love to suck up to people in power or people who were in power, we get to hear these morons, quite frankly, pontificate on things that they know nothing about. Things in which you know, they are going to speak on when they are painfully out of touch with the struggle of average Americans. Now, Claire McCaskill already made her debut on MSNBC, and um, you can kind of get a hint of how it's going to go based on this clip, because it was just, it was stupid and weird and boring. And former Senator Claire McCaskill, who we are proud to announce, has joined NBC News and MSNBC as a political analyst, and we are so excited, so excited to have yes. you on board. You have come to the other side. I have come mm. to the other side. I think I um, want to know. I've, I've always said in my <laughs> offices, you know, we can be smart and have a great work ethic and do good work. But if we have fun, we'll have do great work. So hopefully exactly. that's what this will be about. Well, that's the whole point of you being here. Fun, but also, quite frankly, you've got some uh, some really good sharp elbows and sometimes they're needed with Joe. So thank you. That's You're going to help me out. It, it Kyle Kalinske makes this point all the time. And he's so right about this. He says that if you put someone like Wolf Blitzer and I'm going to add, you know, someone like Claire McCaskill on YouTube. They're not going to even get any time of day by anyone. Nobody cares. They're only going to be successful in media if they are forced upon us. So look, I mean, on one hand, we're going to get a lot of coverage from John Kasich and Jeff Flake and Claire McCaskill saying dumb things. So I mean, in a way, it's going to help out this show, but... um. What matters the most is that the American people are informed and they're not going to help with that cause. Hire a political scientist. Hire actual journalists who are objective. Well, no, they're just going to hire partisan hacks who are going to, I mean, I guess, bring more establishment narrative to the table. I just, I don't, I don't get it. So I have not been this genuinely excited about a YouTube channel that I discovered since, um, I don't know when. I don't know when I could say I was this excited the last time because I just discovered that failed politician Mike Huckabee, who spawned the ghoul that is Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Trump's press secretary, he has his own YouTube channel. Now, it seems as if it's not getting much traction yet because he's still hiding his subscriber count, which is what people do when they are starting out and they're embarrassed that what they're saying isn't gaining much traction. But nonetheless, he has a YouTube channel that is filled with videos and it is a cringe goldmine. And I haven't, I haven't seen anything like this in so long. And I'm incredibly excited because he's trying to kick off what I, I mean, I'm assuming it's a comedy career. He's a failure in politics. He hasn't been the governor now for uh, of Arkansas now for how long? He failed as a presidential candidate multiple times. So what's he doing now? He's getting into comedy. Comedy that is akin to something we'd see 
on Comedy Central, like Stephen Colbert or The Daily Show. And it is... Just, just watch it. From the pages of my website, MikeHuckabee.com, I bring you a crazy observation. Professor Glenn Reynolds of Instapundit likes to say that all the Democrats had to do to regain power was not to act crazy, and they can't even do that. That may be the understatement of the year. Democrats regained the majority in the House last week on promises to lower health care costs, rebuild infrastructure, and return civility to politics. But in just their first four days, they managed to set a new land speed record for careening from reasonable impersonation of a rational human being to full-on bat-poop loonies. <laughs> now, by this time next Thursday, I half expect them to be climbing to the top of the Capitol Dome while screaming gibberish and waving flaming torches. Here's just a little recap of their version of MAGA. Make America groan again. I said, make America groan again. <laughs> now, within the first couple of hours, Democrats filed articles of impeachment against the president with no grounds. They moved to abolish the Electoral College, and they put out notices that they would be hiring lots and lots of lawyers for investigations of President Trump, as well as his businesses, family members, friends, acquaintances, chambermaids, dogs, cats, and chia pets. <laughs> then Representative Rashida Tlaib stood in front of a crowd and said she was quoting what she told her young son when she declared that they were going to impeach the bleeping bleep, using possibly the most vile profanity our language offers. Nancy Pelosi refused to criticize her. Now, I'm so old, I can remember when Nancy Pelosi said that if only the Democrats won, would civility return to politics. But that was a few forgotten months ago, so... <laughs> Of course, any discussion of wackadoodle Democratic antics is not complete without Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She hadn't held her first job in politics for more than 48 hours before calling for a radical green New Deal, as well as some other massive programs that would vastly bloat the government, crush individual freedom, blow tens of trillions of dollars, and remake America into a socialist utopia. She still tends to bristle when anyone brings up the fact and math-challenged aspects of her statements, but I'm happy to report that at least she's now moved beyond saying that, well, we'll just pay for it. And now she's being honest enough to admit that she wants to raise what she called the tippy-top income tax rate to 70%. That's right, 70%. But smart liberals know that's not gonna get her social utopia paid for. New York Times columnist Paul Krugman is calling for a top tax bracket of 80%. But before you could hire an auctioneer, former Obama HUD Secretary Julian Castro called for a 90% top tax rate. I ain't making this up. Folks, God only requires I give 10%. <laughs> Liberals demand that I only get to keep 10%. I'm just glad they're not God, even if they think they are. That was amazing. I kid you not, when um, the camera panned to all of the old people in his audience, like the 85 plus year olds in his audience, I laughed for a good five minutes, nonstop, like laughing as hard as humanly possible with tears streaming down my face. This is 
amazing. <laughs> so in a nutshell, his routine is uh, is this. I'm going to try it. <clears throat> Democrats are so stupid, guys. Aren't Democrats stupid? He also called them, <laughs> he called them, quote, full-on bat <laughs> That's, oh, this is going to be a fun segment. He called them, quote, full-on bat poop loonies. Watch your language there, buddy. Come on, Mike. What are you doing? <laughs> bat poop loonies. <laughs> Got him. And I love how he, he'll say something, like he'll get to the punchline, and then, He'll be like, but nobody takes the cue from him that, oh, this is when we're supposed to laugh. <laughs> so I really like the full-on bat poop loonies, which is ironic coming from an evangelical, but the best punchline in that whole clip, in my opinion, was his make America grown again comment when the audience didn't get the hint that, oh, this is, this is the punchline. So he had to repeat the joke. Oh, it's, it's, you know, the cringe is so strong that you just, you get this physical, visceral response to that. I felt bad for him. I think that this is officially the new please clap moment. I said, make America groan again. <laughs> please clap. So, you know, of course, if you're going to talk about the craziness of Democrats, you're going to bring up AOC because she is a target for Fox News. And I think that a recent Onion article really characterized their obsession with her best in saying that they're launching a 24-hour news network with nonstop coverage of AOC. I think that's great. So, of course, you know, Mike Huckabee had to join in on the fun there, and he took shots at AOC, and he talked about her, her, her policies costing so much that it would explode the deficit. Um, which is funny to me because apparently he's not old enough to remember back in uh, 2017 when Republicans exploded the deficit with tax cuts for the rich themselves. But I mean, I, I guess he's pretending that Republicans still care about the deficit. He also goes through all of the different marginal tax rate proposals. And when 90% came up, he had to add the caveat that he's not making this up, guys. He's being totally serious, everyone. This is real. Somebody proposed a 90% marginal tax rate, but apparently Mike Huckabee also isn't old enough to remember the time when under the Eisenhower administration, the top marginal tax rate was 91%. But yet, this dipshit is going to imply that AOC doesn't know the facts when he doesn't know that during his lifetime, tax rates exceeded 90%. But he has to assure you that this is serious, guys. Somebody actually proposed 90%. Aren't they crazy? No, they're reasonable, Mike Huckabee. And don't try to pretend like you care about facts with your opening, you know, facts of the matter. I think that's the name of a show. You're an evangelical, bitch. You made a career off of not being factual and pretending that everything that happened in the Bible, including talking snakes, is factual. It's historical. So, 
you don't get to pretend as if you care about facts, and you certainly don't get to pretend as if you or other Republicans care about the deficit if you supported Donald Trump's tax cuts for the rich. But I want to get to my second favorite part here, where he says, quote, God says, I only have to give 10%, but liberals say, I only get to keep 10%. Damn. That was absolutely savage. I can see the headlines now. Mike Huckabee destroys liberals with facts and logic. What a fucking doofus Mike Huckabee is. And I can't end this segment without sharing a tweet from MAGAchad Paul Joseph Watson who infamously tweeted this out. The right is starting to get better at comedy, and it's making lefties nervous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A supposedly woke comedian recently made an appearance on MSNBC, and her name is Liza Traeger, or maybe it's Lisa Traeger, I'm not sure, because I'm I'm not familiar with this individual. I had no idea who she was until this segment, but I'm no longer living in ignorant bliss. None of us are because we now unfortunately know who this person is and she decided to share her views on politics with us. And they were doing a segment called Fallback Friday. Now, I didn't know that this is a segment that MSNBC does, but I'm sad that I wasn't included because my recommendation would have been for the entire network of MSNBC to fall back because they are garbage, but nonetheless, I don't want to go down that tangent. Liza Traeger, she's not as woke as she wants us to believe, so I'm going to show you what she said in an inexplicable, random-ass rant against Bernie Sanders, and then we're going to talk about how um, she was quickly exposed almost immediately after saying this on MSNBC. Who else needs to fall back? Uh, Bernie Sanders, fall back. Your year was 2016 and it really wasn't. Please get away from us. Um, I just think it's like fetch. Whoa. It's not going to happen. Um, he also, I think you're disheveled, you're unlikable and you're pushy. Whoa. And I don't think you should be leading anybody. If you couldn't control your campaign and what your employees were doing and harassing and um, paying women unfairly in your campaign, I don't know why you would lead a country or think you can. And we saw with uh, the flipping of the House and everyone voting, everyone's really excited for young female candidates, especially women of color. And we need men to get as excited about women as women are. And that's Mm. the only way to do real change. And I'm kind of sorry, guys, but I'm just like sick of old white dudes. Like, go away. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Let's go. I'll go to craft I guess that was a cue. You know, when I was watching that, the only thing that I could think was, Man, it must be really nice to be able to be privileged enough to make a decision on who you're voting for based exclusively on the identity of the politician. You know, um, I see that Bernie Sanders wants to make healthcare free at the point of service, which would literally save lives, but I have healthcare, so fuck everyone else. I'm going to vote for someone who makes me feel better. So if he's an old white man and I don't feel like voting for an old white man, then I'm not going to vote for an old white man. Fuck all those people whose lives would be saved literally from his policies. (laughs) Ain't I funny? Am I not a good comedian? Don't you like how I am, you know, speaking truth to power? I mean, 
what are you talking about? This is someone who doesn't know anything about politics. Now, I don't know anything about Liza Traeger, but it's clear that she doesn't know anything about politics, and you could surmise that about her just from watching that short clip. And she said this, your year was 2016, and it really wasn't. Get away from us. Get away from us. His year was 2016. He was a no-named senator from Vermont. Nobody in the country knew who Bernie Sanders was. He went on to win 22 states and nearly defeat the political machine that is the Clintons. And he did all of this, nearly beat her in the midst of the DNC rigging the primary against him. So um, if you're saying 2016 was his year, but really it wasn't, we can agree there. Because 2020 will hopefully be his actual year. But then she says, get away from us. You're not doing anything. Get away. You're stupid. Like, do you not realize that just a couple of months ago, he unilaterally got 350,000 Amazon and Whole Food workers raises? Do you not realize that? What are you doing? Are you out there on the streets fighting for unions, fighting for workers, advocating for Medicare for all. What are you doing that you want him to get away from us? You're saying what you think will get you applause. And I mean, you were right because you're on MSNBC, but MSNBC doesn't exist in a vacuum. People who support Bernie enthusiastically because he's going to implement policies that will save their lives will see what you said and get pissed. And they did. Now, she also says here, also, I think you're disheveled, you're unlikable, and you're pushy, and I don't think you should be leading anybody if you couldn't control your own campaign. So, the um, point about him being unlikable and pushy, um, there was a point made on Chapel Trap House that Kyle Kalinske talked about recently, about how the reason why there's this hyper-focus on policy when it comes to Bernie Sanders is because all of the fluff is gone. There's no illusion that, you know, um, there's this cult of personality or that people only like him because he's well-spoken and handsome. He's an old man and you see directly what he stands for. He stands for Medicare for All, tuition-free public colleges and universities. So, I mean, you see him for what he is. So you may see that that's unlikable because he's not charismatic. But that's what actually makes him appealing in a roundabout way. It's because there's no fluff there and bullshit. She also, um, you know, she alluded to the article in the New York Times. We're going to get to that in a different video where I talk about Chuck Todd talking about that. And I'll tell you my thoughts there. But basically, what she's saying here is incredibly ignorant because... The implication that if sexual harassment exists in your campaign, which is not a Bernie problem, it's an America problem, then you are not qualified. Okay, well, will you come out and say that Kamala Harris also isn't qualified because one of her top aides just resigned last month? Nobody on the network you're on is talking about this. Hillary Clinton, I'm assuming you voted for her in 2016. Maybe Google how she actually refused to take meaningful action when one of her staffers was sexually harassed. It's clear that these people are just superficial. They don't like Bernie because they have this visceral reaction to them. The only thing they care about is the identity. And she alluded to this. Everyone's really excited for young female candidates, especially women of color. Well, riddle me this, genius. Why were we all excited about young female candidates? Why were we excited? Name just one policy that any of the freshman congresswomen brought to the table that you're excited for. Name one. I doubt that she could, because she's missing the point that the reason why we were all excited about these 
female candidates isn't because they were women, even though that's great. I think that descriptive representation for women in Congress, we should reach parity. That's a goal in and of itself. But the reason why we were excited is because there's substance behind women like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, Ilhan Omar, and Rashida Tlaib. We're not supporting them because, ooh, they're women. We're supporting them because of the policies. And you know that she would agree that policy is more important because if you ask her, if she'd support someone like Sarah Palin or Carly Fiorina, I think she'd say unequivocally, no, I would never support them. So you've got to understand that even though identity, that's part of life and we need to make sure that we are trying our best to get descriptive representation in Congress, what matters most to people, people whose lives are affected by policy the most, poor people, marginalized communities, people of color, is not the identity of the politician, it's the policies of the politicians. But this is someone who clearly is ignorant. But I bet that she was expecting that or hoping that that would come off as some edgy rant when it's not edgy, you're just misinformed. Now, she wants you to think, I alluded to this, that she's the wokest person in America. You know, she she's so sick of old white dudes. Well, apparently she's also sick of people of color and marginalized communities as well because if you go back through her Twitter history, she said some racist and homophobic things that I think matter now. And she said them recently. So in 2013, she said, quote, by filthy, do you mean Mexican? I mean, you're not woke if you said something like that in 2013. Now, I hope that her views evolved since then, but you're not fucking woke. Shut the fuck up. She also said, I've heard jokes that are funny that use fag. It's someone four minutes. I don't, I don't know what that means. Aren't you for free speech? Confused. That was in December of 2016. So if you don't support the use of fag in particular jokes, then you're against free speech. That's what she said in 2016. You are not woke. Sit down. Actually learn a thing or two from the women in Congress you claim to care about. And then get back to us. In 2013, she made jokes about accidentally liking Asian profiles on Tinder and she said that dating an Asian is like dating someone with one arm. So we've got a double whammy there because she's being both racist and ableist. Now she tweeted about this in response saying, Oh my God, I'm so embarrassed about old bad tweets that were found. I was so shocked to see them. Like, is that really me? At first I was mad because it's like, can you at least wait till I'm successful and have money before you fuck with me? But now I'm just grateful to see what a better and smarter person and comic I am. Sorry guys, but I'm just like sick of old white dudes. Like, go away. <laughs> yes, you've improved so much, Liza or Lisa. <laughs> And I love how, oh, I'm just, I'm so embarrassed about all of these old tweets. One of these were from 2016. They're not that old. I think you're probably pretending to be ignorant about the things that you said, but I mean, this is your words. I thought you were woke. She continues, the tweets are so hateful, dumb, and not funny. I'm truly humiliated and am sorry for my younger self who didn't know better. But like I said, it's nice to see culture move forward and be able to move forward with it and yada, 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 so on, so forth. You know, it's the same thing we've come to expect from pseudo woke Hollywood elites. And look, I am 100% on board with people if they admit that they said things that were wrong and they evolved. People can change. But I mean, you can't just talk shit and present yourself as this woke comedian if you're going to be saying things like this. 
So, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Nobody knows who this individual is, but I mean, she went on MSNBC and decided to spread misinformation about Bernie Sanders. So, I mean, that's something that's harmful. You're hurting the grassroots. People who are poor, people of all colors and orientations and genders who are poor, who are fighting to get him elected, and you just hurt them, Liza, by going on an anti-Bernie propaganda network and, um, yeah, so I hope that you feel happy about yourself. You made a name for yourself here. It's for good or bad, but I'm sure that now you'll have a career because there are plenty of anti-Bernie uh, shows on that network that will be more than willing to hire you since you said that. So, uh, congratulations. Hopefully you accomplished what you sought out to accomplish by going on Ari Melbourne and making that brave rant about Bernie Sanders. So stupid. You're so woke, Liza. actually reading bad. anything i think no. it, for me it's just headlines twitter and what my friends tell me that's how most scary. people are reacting yeah. To yeah that's why when people are like you don't have a grasp on modern politics i'm like i'm sure you're right but i don't think you <laughs> right. have more than me right i just don't buy that they're smarter than me and you're a yeah. comedian your job is to be funny and entertaining and you did that yeah they're just evil i don't know what their goal is go to work Representative Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii's 2nd Congressional District is running for president. Now, I talked about her announcement a couple of days ago, and I kind of hinted at the possibility of me constructing a video where we go through all of her record, because prior to her announcing, there were some articles written, primarily one in The Intercept, that gave a lot of progressives pause about Tulsi Gabbard, but after she announced maybe just within 12 hours of her announcing, there were dozens more articles that were published by journalists who combed through her record and found that there's a lot of problematic things about Tulsi Gabbard that may make her someone who isn't actually as progressive as we all initially thought. So I've decided to do the deep dive more so now than ever, not only because you guys basically overwhelmingly asked for that, but also because... I think that it's important to do so at a time when I'm sort of seeing this factualization among the progressive left with regard to Tulsi Gabbard, because there are some people who feel as if she's someone who is always arbitrarily attacked by establishment Democrats, people like Neera Tandon and Howard Dean, and I 100% get where you're coming from there, but there are other individuals who feel as if they have a real left-wing critique of Tulsi Gabbard, and that in spite of what the establishment may say about Tulsi, she's still not as progressive as a lot of us had uh, initially thought or hoped she would be. So with that being said, 
we're going to go through Tulsi's record in this video. It's going to be really long, but nonetheless, I think it'll be important, and I think it's important to actually go through all of the criticisms of Tulsi Gabbard and decipher which ones are legitimate and which ones are nothing more than smears. There's, I think, a number of both on each side. There are some legitimate, substantive, policy-based criticisms, but there are also criticisms that are nothing more than smears from the establishment. Now, I'll preface this video by talking about the reasons why I like Tulsi Gabbard, um, in spite of the fact that I won't be supporting her for president. My loyalty lies with Bernie Sanders, not because I just have this... Um, affinity for his personality. I care about the policies, and he's been talking about the same things for decades, and that's really what is making me enthusiastic about supporting his campaign. But nonetheless, I like Tulsi Gabbard, and there's a number of reasons why I, as well as other progressives, support Tulsi Gabbard. First and foremost, when she resigned from the DNC to endorse Bernie Sanders in 2016, that was something that took a lot of courage. Courage that other supposedly progressive individuals did not have, like Elizabeth Warren. Now, in addition to that, she was one of the only lawmakers that went to Standing Rock in a show of solidarity with the water protectors that were protesting the Dakota Access Pipeline, something that was incredibly important to me and still is. She's been a longtime advocate for Medicare for All. She's leading the cause for nationwide paper ballots. She drafted a bill that stops America from arming terrorists. She called Donald Trump Saudi Arabia's bitch, and who can't love that? She also was one of three lawmakers that voted against PAYGO. So there's a lot to love about Tulsi Gabbard, and there's good reason for progressives to support her. But with that being said, there are substantive criticisms from the left of Tulsi Gabbard. Now, does that mean that every single smear of the establishment is uh, legitimate? Absolutely not, because I think that individuals like Neera Tandon and Howard Dean, they've gone out of their way to characterize her negatively because, frankly, they probably still hold a vendetta against her because she bucked party orthodoxy, resigned from the DNC, and endorsed Bernie Sanders, and they probably feel as if she made a spectacle out of that and made them look bad, so they're going to hold that against her. But they're not even really trying to hide the fact that they're trying to smear her. I mean, they characterize her as pro-Assad or an Assad apologist, and Claire McCaskill literally described her as Assad's bestie. So these are nothing more than hacky criticisms of Tulsi Gabbard that absolutely have no legitimacy to them whatsoever. If you actually listen to Tulsi Gabbard, she is not a pro-Assad individual. She actually called Assad a brutal dictator. And the reason why she went to Syria is because she was trying to pursue peace. She wanted to talk to the Syrian people and, and advocate against regime change. Because what happened the last time we all got on board with regime change? We overthrew Saddam Hussein, created a vacuum, and that led to the rise of ISIS. So if you get rid of a brutal dictator, an objectively bad person, like Assad, that could pave the way for another version of ISIS to emerge. So just saying that she doesn't support regime change doesn't automatically make her default position, oh, I'm pro-Assad. I mean, she's just saying we shouldn't intervene and do regime change. So you have to understand that that attack that's always used against her, particularly since she returned from Syria, is a hacky establishment attack. But simultaneously speaking, we need to be thorough and objective and acknowledge that two things can be true at once. Are there hacky hatchet job pieces against Tulsi Gabbard, especially when it comes to the Syria issue? Absolutely. 
But on the other side of the same coin are their legitimate criticisms of Tulsi Gabbard that we all need to acknowledge as progressives if we do want to vet all of these candidates and get the best person? Absolutely. And I found out things recently about Tulsi Gabbard that make her especially not as good as Bernie Sanders now knowing what I know. Now, given what we have as the alternative in Donald Trump, would I support Tulsi Gabbard over Donald Trump? Without question, and she's still a better candidate than the establishment figures like Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, and Kirsten Gillibrand, in my opinion. But with that being said, when you juxtapose Tulsi Gabbard with someone like Bernie Sanders and even Elizabeth Warren, she doesn't look as progressive as we previously thought. In fact, there's a lot of red flags. So we'll kind of go through one by one some of the biggest left-wing critiques of Tulsi Gabbard, and I'll tell you my take on them. So the first big criticism of Tulsi is her anti-gay past. Now, the day after she announced, CNN published a story about how during her 2002 run for Hawaii State Legislature, she touted the work that she did for an organization run by her father called the Alliance for Traditional Marriage. Now, what is this organization? It's actually a vehemently anti-gay organization that led the charge to pass a constitutional amendment in Hawaii to ban same-sex marriages. And that's not all. It also supported gay conversion therapy. Each of us has the right to marry, but we don't have the absolute right to marry anyone we want. For example, I'm not allowed to marry my daughter or my son. I can't marry my sister or my brother. And I can't marry chemo. And I can't marry my dog. This doesn't mean we don't have civil rights. Don't open the door to weird marriages. Don't let homosexuals force their values on the people of Hawaii. Vote yes on the marriage amendment. So this was a repugnant organization. Now, she was 21 at the time that she boasted about working for this disgusting organization, but most of her anti-gay activism, if you will, took place when she was only 17 years old, when she was a teenager. Now, as a state legislator, she was quoted saying homophobic things. So, for example, in opposition to a civil unions bill, she said, quote, as Democrats, we should be representing the views of the people, not a small number of homosexual extremists. So understand that her, like a lot of Democratic Party politicians, has an anti-gay past. However, there's something different about Tulsi Gabbard because she actually was an anti-gay activist. It's different. You know, it's one thing really to be just against marriage equality and advocate for bans on same-sex marriage, but the level of zealotry that we saw and the passion we saw does set her apart from individuals like Hillary Clinton and even Barack Obama because yes, she was more anti-gay. Now, the good news is that she has since renounced all of the things she said, and she has in fact apologized for being anti-gay, saying, I want to apologize for statements that I have made in the past that have been very divisive and even disrespectful to those within the LGBT community. I know that those comments have been hurtful, and I sincerely offer my apology to you and hope that you will accept it. Now, she indicated that her views here began to change when she joined the military and went to Iraq, where she saw, quote, the destructive effect of having governments who act as moral arbiters for their people. So, like a lot of other Democratic Party politicians, Tulsi Gabbard was once anti-gay and she evolved. And 
the good thing about Tulsi is that she is walking the walk. She, if you look at her voting record, she is very pro-LGBTQ right now. So the question is, are we able to accept someone and really embrace someone who was that anti-gay, who was more anti-gay than Hillary Clinton even? I think the answer is an unequivocal yes. And the reason why I think that people have the capacity to change is because I've seen it. And quite frankly, if gay people didn't accept that people can genuinely change, then we'd have no friends. I'd have no family if I didn't accept that people could change their views on same-sex marriage. So, I mean, that's the end of the story, right? We wash our hands with it. She evolved. So what's to be discussed now? Well, it's not that simple. Had she just been anti-gay and evolved, that would be one thing, but that's not a really nuanced take on this particular story. And it actually gets a little bit more complicated because in an article for Ozzy, she talked a little bit more about her previous anti-gay views and what ultimately influenced her to evolve. But in the midst of this interview, she made a really important admission and as the author explains, quote, she tells me that, no, her personal views haven't changed, but she doesn't figure it's her job to do as the Iraqis did and force her own beliefs on others. Yeah, thanks but no thanks. That is something that I cannot get past. Because I am a homosexual extremist, and if you don't unequivocally support me both personally and publicly, then fuck you. That's my position. Some people may think that that's too harsh and not agree with it, but that's my position nonetheless. You can agree or disagree with it. Because I need someone who needs to personally care. Now, what someone might say in response to me saying that is, well, Mike, why does it matter what her personal views are? Because if she's functionally pro-LGBTQ, then why do we care what she personally thinks? And well, let me put it this way. Let's say somebody said, look, I would vote against any racist bill that I saw come up in the House of Representatives, but personally, I'm racist. I just think that whites are superior to all other races. Do you think that that candidate would be palatable in 2019? They wouldn't. If somebody said, look, I support women's rights, but personally, I just think that women, you know, their place is at home in the kitchen. Would you think that that's a palatable position to take in 2019? If so, then, I mean, we're just going to have to agree to disagree there. But if she just remained a lawmaker, I wouldn't have as much problems. But if you want to lead the country, if you want to be the advocate for LGBTQ equality and rights, you have to be a leader. I need to trust that you're not just going to begrudgingly go along with LGBTQ rights because that's what's socially acceptable. I want you to want to fight for us. And at a time when violence against trans women in the United States, I mean, 2018 was one of, if not the highest years for violence against trans people at a time when LGBTQ rights are constantly under assault when you could be fired in dozens of states just for being gay i don't want someone who is supporting lgbtq rights because that's what they feel as if they have to do to advance their career i want them to want to do it and that's the difference between people like bernie sanders and tulsi gabbard bernie sanders has been fighting for lgbtq rights since before i was born tulsi gabbard had to evolve now if she evolved and she genuinely evolved that would be one thing but to personally think that gay people are icky 
I can't support that. You're just not a great ally. I don't care how great your voting record is. Now, again, that's is something that's just not going to be palatable to members of the LGBTQ community for good reason. Now, if she evolved personally, that would be a different story. But as far as we know, she has not. Because in response to a 2017 article detailing why the Hawaii LGBTQ caucus won't support her because of her admission about being personally homophobic, her team actually put out a response to that article. And while she listed all of the wonderful bills that she's co-sponsored in support of LGBTQ rights, when it comes to the question of whether or not she's evolved personally, she didn't address it. And that was in 2017. So the most recent indication we have is that she still personally thinks gay people are an abomination. And that's something that is incredibly worrying. Now, let me be clear here. Given the choice between her and Donald Trump, I go with Tulsi, obviously. I wouldn't sit out the general because of Tulsi Gabbard. But when given the choice between Tulsi and Bernie, I mean, the choice is clear. Bernie Sanders is just way better than Tulsi on this issue. That's not even arguable, I don't think. And on top of that, we have a more recent indication that Tulsi Gabbard still doesn't really understand the scope of LGBTQ equality in America and why we have to be very vigilant about attacks on this community. Because she wrote an op-ed for The Hill just this year, a couple of weeks ago, that accused fellow Democrats of religious bigotry for questioning one of Donald Trump's district court nominees named Brian Butcher. Now, the reason why Democrats were questioning him is because he has ties to a Catholic organization called Knights of Columbus, which previously funded anti-gay marriage initiatives in 2012. They gave to the National Organization for Marriage, and Tulsi said this in that article. While I oppose the nomination of Brian Butcher to the U.S. District Court in Nebraska, I stand strongly against those who are fomenting religious bigotry, citing as disqualifiers Butcher's Catholicism and his affiliation with the Knights of Columbus. So why is this problematic? Because while her Democratic colleagues were trying to gauge whether or not this judge's ties to Knights of Columbus would be something that could potentially harm LGBTQ people and bias him when it comes to that issue, Tulsi Gabbard didn't stand with her Democratic allies. She chose to defend him, citing concern over religious bigotry when the Democrats who were questioning him were in the right because they were being hypervigilant and looking out for LGBTQ people. That's reason why on this issue, she's face-planted. And I, it pains me to say that about Tulsi Gabbard. It pains me to say that because I would like to say, oh, well, it's been a couple of years since she said that she, you know, still is personally against gay people. But I mean, we have this article from a couple of weeks ago that she penned herself. It's her words, not anyone else's. And she's more concerned about this person's religiosity and religious bigotry than LGBTQ people. That is problematic. And it's not the only area with regard to social issues that Tulsi Gabbard is problematic because she joined Republicans and the most conservative Democrats in the House, including Dan Lipinski, Kirsten Sinema, and Henry Queller, to vote for a bill that put additional restrictions on Syrian and Iraqi refugees from entering the country. And that's not the only social issue she's been wrong on. She also started off her career as someone who was anti-abortion. Now, again, that's another issue where she's since 
evolved, but on social issues, there's a lot to be desired, which is disappointing because if you're looking at a Democrat, you know, you just kind of assume that it's a given that they're generally speaking going to be better on social issues. But when it comes to Tulsi Gabbard, you really do have to be more nuanced here and acknowledge that there are issues that need to be addressed by her more than an apology, but I want her to answer whether or not she still personally feels as if homosexuality is an abomination. Would she still vote to restrict Syrian refugees from coming into the country? These are questions that I want her to answer. Now, when it comes to other issues, she's also taken really curious positions on one of which that I just thought was a common sense position that all progressives took, but she used right-wing talking points to defend torture. This is a clip from a 2014 uh, interview she did that made me cringe. Let me ask you in the end, as a soldier, how do you respond to the much-discussed uh, report on the CIA's use of torture uh, and, and, and what what some Americans have called a blot on American values. Do you share that opinion or as a soldier do you have a very different perspective on the use of torture? Um, very bluntly, I'm conflicted. I'm conflicted on this report. There are, uh, I think the jury is still out on the report itself. Uh, there have been comments that there are things missing or it was incomplete and there, there are differing opinions on the report itself. Mm. Uh, but I, as I think about it myself, uh, clearly we would not like to see any human, uh, any person around the world being treated inhumanely. Uh, on the other side, I can also understand uh, that any of us, if we're in a situation where our family or our community, our state or our country is, is in a place where, let's say in an hour, hmm. a nuclear bomb or an attack hmm. will go off unless this information is found, uh, I believe that if I were the President of the United States, that I would do everything in my power to keep the American people safe. Uh, so this is, this is an area that uh, I have conflicting feelings on. Although, of course, there are questions about whether torture actually leads to uh, the correct intel, right? Yeah. That debate carries on. That debate carries on. There are those who uh, are uh, in the position of conducting these interrogations, some who have said it does uh, work. It does, and others who have said uh, it doesn't. So I think that that video and what she said, her own words, it speaks for itself. These bizarre hypothetical situations are always fabricated by right-wingers in order to justify a barbaric method of, quote, intelligence collection. But torture doesn't work, it's unethical, it's unconstitutional, and it violates international law. Someone who's progressive should just, by default, take that position, but unfortunately, she is not taking that position, and what especially hurts is the use of right-wing talking points. Now, I don't know if she did that, you know, unwittingly, but these are the right-wing justifications used to justify torture. Now, it's not the only time Tulsi Gabbard has used right-wing talking points to attack a left-wing foreign policy position, because, in fact, she was a vocal critic of President Obama specifically with regard to foreign policy, not because he was bombing too much, but because he wouldn't say radical Islam. Uh, and what is so frustrating now, as we look at the situation there, uh, our administration refuses to recognize who our enemy is. And unless and until that happens, then it's impossible to come up with a strategy to defeat that enemy. We have to recognize that this is about radical Islam. This is a, as much a military war as it is an ideological war. And we've got to understand what that ideology is and challenge it, understand it, so that we can 
defeat it. Now, make no mistake about it. That's a right wing attack on Obama. And I'm no fan of Obama. I'm not saying that Obama is above criticism. But the reason why right wingers say that Barack Obama should use the term radical Islamic terror, not that it makes any fucking difference at all, but the reason why they say that and they repeat it over and over and over and over is because they're trying to imply and prime you to believe that Obama is just soft on terror, which is fucking bullshit because he dropped so much bombs on ISIS, he literally ran out of bombs to drop on them. And to see someone who is on the left use that attack on Obama of all attacks, it really is disheartening to see. Now, part of the reason why she has that stance is because she's previously characterized herself as a dove when it comes to wars of regime change, but a quote, hawk when it comes to the war against terrorists. And she actually criticized Obama for not extending his drone program to Syria before it actually was, in fact, extended to Syria. Now, she's been generally supportive of the U.S.'s drone program, as far as I know, throughout her career. And that's something that I also find problematic. Now, the issue here is that I can't give Bernie a pass for this as well, and anyone for that matter a pass, because all of the candidates, progressives included, are complete garbage on this particular issue. Bernie supports the drone war. Tulsi supports the drone war. This is an illegal program that kills countless civilians. And I'd expect all progressives to unequivocally condemn it. But unfortunately, Tulsi, like Bernie, hasn't done that. Now, she's also posed for photo ops with the president of Egypt, who is a repressive anti-gay dictator. She's posed for photo ops with a Netanyahu apologist, with Miriam Adelson, wife of Sheldon Adelson, who's one of the most prominent Republican Party donors, and on the issue of Israel-Palestine. Like Bernie, she's not great. She now claims to be in support of a two-state solution, but spoke at a conference of Christians United for Israel, which actually opposes Palestinian statehood. She spoke there in 2015, and she also didn't boycott Netanyahu's address to Congress when Bernie Sanders did. Now, that doesn't necessarily make her that much different than Bernie Sanders when it comes to Israel-Palestine, but certainly when it comes to foreign policy issues, Bernie Sanders is better because Bernie Sanders doesn't support torture. And I really, really hope that Tulsi Gabbard has since changed her view on, tol on torture and will be unequivocally against torture. So when it comes to domestic issues, by and large, I think that Tulsi Gabbard is great in spite of when it comes to LGBTQ rights. If you put an asterisk next to that, uh, she's okay on domestic issues. In fact, being a champion for Medicare for All is something that I think makes her heroic in some ways because I think that that would save lives. So on domestic issues, her being an ally to progressives and firmly rooting her feet in our camp, that's important and it means a lot to me, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we can't criticize her where she has some weaknesses because I do think that no candidate is above criticism, and we do need to hold their feet to the fire. Now, when it comes to foreign policy issues, I'd like her to improve there. But what I didn't get to is just international issues, generally speaking. And I kind of alluded to this in the video where I talked about her announcing her run for the presidency. And she's posed for multiple photo ops with Modi, the far-right prime minister of India. Now, the reason why this is something that's just weird is because it's not just that she posed for photo ops, but 
her affinity for him goes deeper than just her posing for a photo op or two. In fact, in Congress, she's actually been an ally to Modi. Now, the reason why Modi is a red flag is because for most of his career, he's been vehemently Islamophobic, and he's a Hindu nationalist that wants a state for Hindus to the exclusion of Muslims, to the exclusion of Christians. And he also oversaw the outbreak of a violent uprising by Hindu nationalists that led to the slaughter of more than a thousand Muslims. And even if he may not necessarily be directly responsible for that, and even if legally speaking he was exonerated, many still rightfully accuse him of at least being complicit in all of those deaths. Now, in India, he's kind of a Trumpian-like figure who's openly nationalist, and he should, theoretically speaking, turn off someone who's progressive, someone like Tulsi Gabbard, but for whatever reason, she's one of his closest allies in Congress. Quote, in December 2013, she had voiced her opposition to House Resolution 417, which chided India to protect the rights and freedoms of religious minorities and referred to incidents of mass violence against minority Muslims that had taken place under Modi's watch. Gabbard later told the press that there was a lot of misinformation that surrounded the event in 2002. So that's weird, but maybe it's just the case that she is trying to be objective and she really doesn't think that he was complicit in the slaughter of Muslims. Maybe that's just, you know, a one-off, except she has attended events planned by, quote, overseas friends of BJP, which is Modi's party. And what's strange is that her connection to Hindu nationalists actually goes deeper than that, because over her career, she's accepted more than a million dollars from donors, all of which have ties to a network of Hindu nationalists that subscribe to a Hindu supremacist anti-Muslim ideology, and according to The Intercept, she's attended conferences organized by affiliates of this said network. Now, the good news is that she's since distanced herself from this network and understand that this is kind of a guilt by association argument but she can basically solve this issue if she just gives us an explanation here being tied to someone who is a far-right prime minister like modi it is problematic if you're progressive people who care about human rights are going to have questions for you now to be fair to her she's also met with opponents to modi's party but overall that doesn't erase the weird ties that she has to Modi, the personal ties where he actually had a wedding present delivered to her. But I mean, still, knowing Tulsi, I can't say that she supports him because she's also a Hindu supremacist and, you know, she subscribes to this Hindu nationalist ideology, but the connection is rightfully worrying to some people. And with that being said, Tulsi Gabbard is someone who has vocalized concerns about anti-Hindu bigotry, and I think that's something that we have to worry about. Anytime there's an underrepresented, marginalized community, you do have to be hypersensitive to what they're saying. So I think that Tulsi's, you know, fears here are legitimate, but with that being said... I still think that she needs to explain to us why she was previously associated with someone like Modi, who isn't just someone who cares about the rights of Hindu, you know, Americans. He's someone who's a Hindu nationalist, a Hindu supremacist, who has a vehemently Islamophobic platform and point of view, and he's put all of these views into practice by policy as Prime Minister of India. So understand that, with that being said, that's basically the bulk of my main critiques. There are other criticisms of Tulsi Gabbard, but I don't think that they're legitimate. Um, these are the main ones that are coming from the left that I actually do wish she would listen to, 
and respond to. Now, the great news is that Tulsi Gabbard, unlike a lot of politicians, actually does listen to criticism and respond. I mean, I tweeted to her on the day when the Pago vote was taking place, saying we need her. And what did she do? She turned around and she voted against Pago. Now, is that because of me? No, I'm not claiming to have any power, but she does listen to the progressive community. And I do still characterize her as an ally and i don't want you to take this video even though throughout the bulk of it i've been critical of her as me not liking tulsi gabbard i'm just saying to put this all in context given the choice between tulsi gabbard and bernie sanders in the 2020 democratic party primary these are the reasons why i will not be supporting tulsi gabbard over bernie sanders and it's largely the same reason why i won't be supporting elizabeth warren over Bernie Sanders. It's for the same reason as to why I didn't support Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders. I don't support Tulsi over Bernie because on most of these issues, he is better, not just by a little bit, but by a mile and has a history of supporting these issues, things that he's genuinely cared about. Civil rights when he was a college student, you know, being an advocate for LGBTQ rights when he was the mayor of Burlington, Vermont, which almost destroyed his career because a homophobic city council didn't like what he was doing in allowing gay pride parades to take place. And let me also be clear here, no presidential candidate is perfect. But again, for purposes of context, when choosing between Bernie and Tulsi, for these reasons listed in the video, that's why I can't support Tulsi during the primary. And I'll leave it there, but I do want you to know that I expect this to be a really interesting Democratic Party primary because I do think that Tulsi Gabbard is a solid candidate. Had she waited, you know, 10 more years and really built up her ties to the LGBTQ community and had a more extensively progressive voting record... I think I might support her over Bernie because just taking into account electability, I mean, she's young, she's charismatic, she's a woman. So for those reasons alone, if they were equal, you know, all things considered, if they were ideologically aligned 100%, I think that there would be reasons to support her over Bernie for purposes of electability. But with that being said, they're not equal and I have to prioritize the policy positions over the personality. I have to prioritize the policy positions over everything else. And when we do that, when we look at her record and we be objective and we put aside, you know, the, the feelings of cognitive dissonance that makes us feel a little bit bad about criticizing someone who's obviously an ally to progressives and we just look at her record for what it is there are things that she needs to respond to and answer for and i don't think that you can get through a democratic party primary and get support from progressives unless you assure us that these problems that i'm listing and that other left-wingers are, li are are listing are addressed and that's all that i'll say about this issue well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in if you've made it this far and listened to me rant for that long. So, um, as usual, if you want to support the show, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash Humanist Report or HumanistReport.com slash support. And if you want to see my recent appearance on Real Progressives with Savage Joy, then definitely check that out. It's on the Real Progressives YouTube channel. I hope that you will subscribe to them. So, uh, with that being said, I will see you all next week. Take care. I'm Mike Figueredo. This has been the Humanist Report Podcast. <laughs>